Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. You give us 22 minutes, we'll give you the world. All news, all the time. The news watch never stops. More people get their news from 1010 Winds than from any other radio station in the nation. If you grew up and live in the New York tri-state area, then I'm going to bet the farm that you've listened to and continue to listen to 1010 Winds Radio. And undoubtedly, you're more than familiar with award-winning reporter Juliet Papa, my guest today. In the spirit of full disclosure, Juliet and I met many years ago working at WVOX, a small radio station in Westchester County just outside New York City, and our paths crossed again at 1010 Winds. A household name, Juliet's covered New York City triumphs and tragedies, the COVID-19 pandemic, Superstorm Sandy, the 2003 massive blackout that brought the New York City metro area to its knees. She's been a fixture in the courtroom, reporting on the Harvey Weinstein sex assault trial, the trial of notorious mob boss John Gotti. And from the Winds newsroom, she special anchored the O.J. Simpson trial. She's reported from the annual New York City Thanksgiving Day Parade and co-anchored the Columbus Day Parade during a nationally televised broadcast for ABC TV in 2018, as well as the Yankee and Women's Soccer Ticker Tape Parades. She was sent to Rome to cover the death of Pope John Paul II and the election of his successor, Francis. Juliet's written two books, The Mafia Handbook and Lady Killer, as well as numerous articles. She received the National Gracie Award, Outstanding Reporter Correspondent, and the New York State Associated Press Excellent Award for Outstanding Individual Reporting. I'm not going to say anymore, Juliet. That's enough. (laughs) Uh, I can go home now. (laughs) Well, you are home. (laughs) Yes, yes, I am. Good to see you. How are you? I'm all right. So do you ever just think to yourself, holy shit, what have I done? (laughs) Well, firstly, yeah, you know, I kind of blush. And then these are some things that I forget about. And I go, oh, yeah, like I was there for that. And, oh, I did that. And, oh, that was scary or that was crazy. And but then I think about what a great time this has been and what great opportunities I've had in this profession to really be at these things and at these events and be on the front line. You really are a frontliner, and you are an eyewitness to a lot of history. And I will tell you, working with so many different colleagues out in the fields, it's, it's actually a lot of fun, a lot of pressure, but it's also a lot of fun. So I really have a good time on my job. Oh, man, that <laughs> is so great. And even after a long, a long tenure, sometimes people obviously experience burnout. Go back in time when you were going to college, was this what you aspired to be a reporter? <laughs> um, well, I'll go back a little further. I'll, t- I'll talk about high school. Uh, I went to an all-girls Catholic school, and I loved it. And they were very progressive in that uh, uniforms were optional. We did field trips. Uh, we There was a lot going on that sort of a, a cut above. One of my field trips was actually to 1010 Winds. And I got to see what it was like to run, you know, see this operation, radio station. They were very welcoming. But that was really not a thought. It was just I thought something fun and different to do. I'm sure my parents listened to it. So maybe that's why it was familiar. 
But I also got involved with the high school newspaper. And a friend of mine was the editor. So she'd always bug me. Oh, can you write an article for me about this or that? And then I'd help, help her do layout. And it was really fun. So I think that sort of stoked my curiosity. My parents always had newspapers in the house. They listened to the news on the radio. They watched it on TV. So they were always involved and topical. When I went to college, the first couple of years in school, I wasn't sure what I was doing. And I actually thought about taking a break after sophomore year. Because I said, what what am I doing with myself? And I started going on interviews with airlines to be a flight attendant. Are you kidding? No, I thought I would travel. Huh, all right. So I was going on these interviews and I actually got flown down to Dallas. Now, I don't remember which airline this was, but I had like a second or third interview and I get flown down to Dallas And I think I blew it because I gave them the wrong slogan for the company. (laughs) (laughs) If it was like we earn our wings every day, it was doing what we do best. You know, it was the wrong slogan. Mm -hmm. So I blew it. But then fortuitously that summer, I was in touch with some people from school and they said, you know, the college radio stations operating in the summertime you know, maybe you should check it out, blah, blah, blah. And that's what I did. And they said, yeah, you know, come back in September and you can get involved. And that's how it all started because there was such a great group of students there that were very good at recording, editing, writing. They were so creative. They were super bright. We ran the place like a, a, a radio station. Everybody had shifts. I became the quote news director because they said that was your entry level job. I was like, yeah, whatever. Okay. We Did had, the station uh, play music? What kind of, yeah, what they, kind yeah, of they had every, yeah, every couple of like two hour shifts, somebody did jazz, somebody did rock and roll, somebody did oldies. Everybody had their shift. And, you know, Mike McCann on WFAN. Oh, sure. Was, I worked with him he too. He was mm-hmm. one of the people at the college radio station. This was WQMC Queens College. Yeah. So you, you played music and then had newscasts, what, at the top of the hour, at the bottom right. of the hour? Uh-huh. Yes, top of the hour. And we had an AP wire machine, believe oh. it or not. So we got why. So I learned how to read that and what that was all about. And uh, yeah, we wrote our newscast and then I covered news on campus. <laughs> <laughs> and then the best thing was the first perk. And I said, oh, this is for me. Queens College was notorious for not having any parking around the campus because it was very residential and uh, you couldn't park. So I used to take the bus to school, but I got a parking pass from the school (laughs) to park on campus. And that just sealed the deal. I said, this is great. (laughs) I drove to school and had a parking space. It's like, whoa. You can't beat this. So and I'm not giving you know, up the radio gig because no, I'm not this is... give up the parking. <laughs> you know what your priorities were. Yeah. And it was great. It was great. And we, we really, uh, so many people were successful. Another friend of mine, he became the head of like tech and engineering at NBC Network. So when the Olympics were on, that was his thing. When there was, let's say, you know, the uh, NASA, you know, the next Apollo 
or enterprise he was doing that uh any huge tragedy he was in charge of getting all that on the air so that was he had a big big job you know so he he was successful so many people out of there did very very well i was very fortunate i got an internship in senior year at the time it was wpix fm Jim Kerr, who's still mm-hmm. on the radio today, mm-hmm. was the morning DJ. And I worked for their newscaster and I learned to write rock and roll news. Yes. So mm-hmm. I get there at, you know, five in the morning and I was writing rock and roll news. I don't know if I knew what I was doing, but, you know, the woman there taught me, showed me what to do and I did the best I could. And then I was editing her interviews and she was interviewing big time rock and roll people, you know, Linda Ronstadt and the Eagles and, you know, huge people of their time. And she'd show me how to put the music bed underneath. So, I mean, it took me hours to do this because I was terrified. I didn't know what, you know, what I was doing and I wanted to get it right. But I learned how to do that. And it was a great learning experience up there. It was a lot were you of on the air? Were you on the air there or you were? No, I was just like her writer and her gopher probably. Okay. But what was really cool is at the time, WPIXFM was in the Daily News building. So I would get to, I would go whatever, twice a week, three times a week, whatever it was. I thought it was the coolest thing to go to quote work in the Daily News building because in the lobby, you know, they had that big globe and, you know, it had the whole legend of Superman and, you know, the Daily News was iconic. I just thought this was like the coolest thing to do. <laughs> so I, I, lo- I didn't get like enough that early, but uh, it was really, it was fun. It was, it was scary because, like I said, I was new at all of that. But you just, you know, you did it. You just said, oh, I got to show up and do it. And, and you do it. I think what's so fascinating is this on-the-job training. Clearly, they saw something in you. They just didn't pull you off from teaching English and do this or whatever, or doing a shop and learning on the job, which really is such a throwback to the days that doesn't happen (laughs) now. And so so you graduate, and what happened next? So So I graduated, and I stayed there. I stayed at the radio station, even with like no credit, just to have the experience. And I stayed there. I went in a couple of days a week because then I had my part-time job at the supermarket, which really paid very well. (laughs) I was a cashier at a Grand Union supermarket. I I don't think they exist anymore. So I worked there through high school and college. So by this time, though, I was more like working in the office doing bookkeeping which was fine because I wasn't on the register all the time and they liked me. And then they wanted to send me to like manager school or bookkeeping school or something. So they wanted me to pursue a career in supermarkets. But I was like, nah, you know, I don't want to do that. So then what happened was then I get a call from the person who followed me as news director at the college radio station. And he says, you know, 1010 Winds is looking for entry-level people. And why don't you, they called here. So what what 1010 Winds did is they called around to all like CUNY colleges. That's how a lot of 
colleagues of mine came from Brooklyn College because they had a big radio station operation also. And they called some Fordham. They had a big radio station operation in college. So they called these very active colleges with active radio stations and, and say, you know, we have entry level openings. So I went and applied. And ironically, when I applied, I saw people that I remembered from my high school field trip. (laughs) (laughs) Frankie Kaplan was uh, an engineer. (laughs) He was there. And so I got an entry-level job at 1010 Wings as a, at the time it was called, a desk assistant. So I stayed at Wings. And then, you know, that was part-time. And I was still staying at the supermarket because I was making more money there. So I worked two jobs. And then a few months down the road, I actually got a job at this little radio station in Rockland County. And then I started working there and I commuted up there. Uh, It was like an hour and change drive every day. So I started working up there. It was a night shift and uh, got paid hardly anything. But now I was street reporting and I'm covering the school board which who knew what to do about that and the Rockland County legislature and crime and this and that. And then I was on the air. I was anchoring a newscast. So that started that. And then Sandy Klein, (laughs) I went over to WVOX where I met you. Exactly. I was uh, anchoring quite frankly, not knowing what the hell I was doing. Uh, (laughs) And speaking of Queens, that's where I lived. And I would get up at the crack of dawn to anchor newscasts there. And that's where I met you. And the irony for me was that back in the day, remember how they used to say, if you want to make it big in New York, you got to go to Des Moines, Iowa first, cut your teeth or go to Cedar Rapids, Idaho. And I think, tell me if I'm right about this, because this is my own theory. I think by virtue of the fact of our gender, okay, and that Mm -hmm. females were really not that ubiquitous, even though it sounds like it was for your school, that when I decided I can't do this VOX anymore, and I wound up, I didn't have to go, and as neither did you, out of the area, and I wound up doing newscast on the weekend and then filling in at Hot 97, which was quite the radio station back then. Yes, yes, And it was, in a sense, like dying and going to heaven. And that (laughs) that I was able, so I was, you started in New York and you went north to some of the suburbs, obviously. Yes. And for me, it was just, I was just very fortunate. I'm not going to say that that they hired me only because I was female, but what didn't hurt was having a deep voice. I think yes, back and in a the strong day. voice. And just just so for our listening audience, I have to I have to talk about Sandy Klein did this morning show at WVOX with who Ernie Sprantz, right? Ernie Sprantz. Who lives in my town, by the way. Oh wow. <laughs> so they had this great like sort of talk news show. It was, I think, ahead of its time, with it, and this was a very serious-minded owner-operator there, Bill O'Shaughnessy who took his news and his local news very seriously. And he was very much involved in the community and with the politicians. And so he wanted a good newscast. So Sandy and Ernie, they did this great show every morning. And that was morning drive. That was a very big deal. So you had sort of a great launching pad there from VOX because that was very regarded and very respected. and. 
Yeah. So that was a good place to go from to somewhere else. Well, that's a good point. I do remember having one experience that was so horrifying that they did send me out. I can't remember who it was who died. Was it a some, a governor of New York? I can't remember who happened. Yes, Malcolm Wilson. Oh, yes. thank you, who was Catholic. <laughs> and I was sent to record the homily of his mass, okay? Okay. So I'm in the back where the, what's it, the vestry, where the priests, you know, change yes. their, yes. their, their vestments. Very good. What, I wouldn't know a homily if it bit me in the ass. And it was just, <laughs> what the hell is a homily? Yeah, what and do so I do now? I, think I said to, the, <laughs> I said to the, the priest, I have to record the homily. What do I do? And the next thing I know, I'm out like uh, uh, putting a microphone in like a lectern and saying to him, just press play and record when you're about to do the homily because Bill O'Shaughnessy hobnobbed with all these politicians and yes, it was yeah and very oh, involved. Was, oh my god it was awful and you had it you better get it right oh you know? now and there were times when I didn't and boy so then you to jump ahead you wind up getting a full-time gig at 1010 wins do you remember the year that you were hired full-time um, yes, but in between, I, I will tell you where else I was. <laughs> oh, maybe I didn't know this. Okay. So there was WVOX, then there was WFAS for a short time up in White Plains. White Plains, so, right. Because VOX was like part-time. So I anchored at WFAS in White Plains. Then I went out to WGSM Radio on Long Island in Melville, because they also had a very good reputation. And I think I worked there on weekends. I did weekend news. And in a way it was torturous because there would be these beautiful weekends and I'm driving out to Long Island and I should be, you know, <laughs> veering off to the beach. Right, right. And, I'm, and I'm like, well, and I'm, you know, why am I going to work? But great people there. And I did some weekend stuff. I think by that time, obviously I quit the supermarket because now I was you think? You know, <laughs> making more money. So I was working two and three jobs. So then though, from GSM, I went to WGBB and I did that full time. And that was very exciting. I was the afternoon drive anchor. And we did, again, another small radio station owner who was, he was a, a First Amendment attorney, Franz Alana, he got very involved with the news uh, of the station and the and the area. He owns a station in California. Then he bought one in Westport, Connecticut. So he had a few play a few stations around the country. Small. We did major projects. We did a whole thing about the Shoreham nuclear power plant, whether it should open or close. That was a huge issue at the time. We sponsored, and I was a panelist at WGBB for Where were gubernatorial America Long Island. Okay, gubernatorial debate. We sponsored and held a gubernatorial debate when Ed Koch was running for governor, and that was like his disastrous run for governor. Right, and right. we had him at the studio, so we did all this. So again, great, great experience. So then with all of this, I started stringing from Long Island for 1010 wins, which means I was their Long Island reporter for like hardly any money. But I was covering stories out there for them. 
And my first story for on the air for 1010 Wins was a, a hospital interview with Truman Capote. Oh, my God. So what happened was I'm working for WGBB. And we had, you know, a newsroom staff and everybody was pretty resourceful. And Truman Capote was out in Southampton. That's where he would stay or hang out. And there was the big news, Associated Press, whatever, uh, rushed to Southampton Hospital. It's like, wow, big, that's a lot going on. So, of course, we said, well, let's find out about it. So we're calling the hospital. Of course, they're not telling you too much. So I decided, well, maybe you just call. This is before HEPA laws and everything like that, right? I said, like, let me find out if I'm just going to call and ask for a room number and see what happens, right? Oh, yes, I'd like room 312. So I call. I go, oh, I'd like to speak to Mr. Capote in room 312. And they said, oh, no, Mr. Capote's in room 316. (laughs) And they switched me over. Oh, God. <laughs> so now he's on the phone. <laughs> so I did this interview on the phone with Truman Capote. Very cool. And he talked about what he was working on and the new book that he was working on and blah, blah, blah. He went on and on. It was great. So then I called 1010 Wins and the editor at the time was Tom Anderson. Now, I don't know if you remember. Did you work there at all no, when he was there? no. no. Well, he is now a producer at 60 Minutes. So he was, he was great. And I loved working with this guy. And I said to him, you know, I have this interview with Truman Capote. He says, you what? <laughs> Why was he in the hospital, Capote? I don't know. He had some kind of an attack of something. I have oh, no idea. Okay. And, and, and at the time he recovered, but I don't know. Uh, he was, uh, was always sort of a sickly guy, you know, so uh, wh- whatever the problem was. But so I said, I have this interview. He goes, you what? I said, yeah, I have this interview with Truman Capote. He says, well, you are putting this on the air here. I want you to write three raps and you're going to be on the air with this story. So that was my wins on air debut, my interview with Truman Capote. What year was that? Oh, wow. In the 80s. That was in the, in the 80s. 80s. Yes. So how ubiquitous were women? Um, believe it or not, there weren't many. Uh, there were more, I think, going into television, because remember Eyewitness News had Roseanne Scamardella and Melba Tolliver, and they had a very diverse group of people. So this was just becoming now a, a thing. Our female reporters at the time at 1010 Wins, I think Linda Sutter was the consumer reporter. And then Eileen Douglas took her place. And I remember when women were first allowed in locker rooms, in in professional Uh, sports locker rooms, uh they sent Linda Sutter to one of the locker rooms. And that was a huge deal because that was never allowed. So there weren't that many women out there. And then Eileen Douglas became the consumer, again, you know, the consumer reporter. Then she eventually went on the street. But then I was, like I said, I was their stringer from Long Island. And then I eventually started getting freelance reporting jobs. 
And then Arlene Sachs, who was an editor at WINS, I think did an occasional reporting job. And Eileen Douglas did an occasional reporting job because then by that time, Eileen Douglas was working at Channel 5 as a television reporter. So more women, probably right at that time, were coming onto the scene or being hired or being used on the air. Winslow had a woman on in Morning Drive, Kate Dorton, and she really sounded amazing. She had a very sort of easygoing but authoritative style, and she was in Morning Drive. Yeah, that's a big deal. And that was late that 80s, was right? Yeah. I believe yes, I believe so. Yeah, that's yeah. huge. That's really huge. Yes. And she was on there for for quite some time. And she was great to work with. She just very easy, lovely person. And in fact, I heard from her just about a year or two ago. I don't know if she saw me on Facebook or Twitter and she reached out and she's living, I think, in California or something. It was so delightful to hear from her. Because these were people when I was young. I was very impressionable and these are people I learned from and they were very kind, very good to me, or, or at least we had a good time. You know, mm, working no, no, no. Together. That's a, that's a very big deal. I mean, again, as I said, I mean, you had a lot of on the job training after they hired you full time. Were you ever typecast as reporter? No, I don't think I was assigned specifically because I was a girl. Actually, you know, Doug Edelson and Stan Brooks at the time was at City Hall, and that was always sort of a specific beat, but they were the experienced reporters who covered that in election day. I covered really anything and everything. Uh, I did work the holidays because I was freelance, and then, you know, the freelancers worked all the holidays. So I did Fourth of July and Thanksgiving, Day Parade, and... Uh, uh, New Year's Eve, maybe, you know, all that stuff, because you you were the freelance person and you were the, the kid and that's what you did. But that was okay because you hustled and you, want, you wanted to work and get paid. So that's what you did. But I don't feel I was ever typecast because I was a woman. I covered a certain thing or I covered features or no, it was you were out there. And mm-hmm. I was going to dangerous areas and, you know, later on when there was unrest and protests and riots that got dangerous, I got sent there like anybody else. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was, was So would you remember the, the year that you actually, they said, we want you full time? Yes, 1986. 1986. But I've been freelancing for several years already. But no, that was I understand. Right. And then I was a staff. I became a staff employee. I mean, how did the trials come about? Because, boy, you did some definite high-profile ones. They were huge stories at the time. And at the time, we had more personnel to spare. So if it, sometimes these trials, like, you know, the preppy murder trial, Robert Chambers, oh, I would God, say that yes. was my first big trial. Jennifer Levin. He murdered yes. Jennifer Levin in Central Park. Yes. Right. Big trial that was a national or international story. Right. That was a story every day. And I covered that every day. And then there was uh, Joel Steinberg and Hedda Nussbaum. And remember the little girl Lisa died. Yes. uh, yes. in, in, In their care. That was a child abuse case. I was at that every day. Then there were all the mob trials. 
There was John Gotti. There was Vincent the Chin Gigante. Oh, there was Gene, the Gene, John Gotti's brother, Gene Gotti. There was a whole group of guys, the Cold Windows trial. They were shaken down, extorting, I think it was the city, over contracts for windows in public housing. That was all a big corruption trial. But I covered these trials every day because guess what? There was drama there every day. You know, you watch these television shows, these police procedurals. That's what it's like. There's somebody on the witness stand testifying or the cops are interviewing somebody or somebody's going before the judge or there's a big confrontation between the witness and the prosecutor. That was all what I was covering every day. And I'll tell you, if that was real life, it was better than TV. <laughs> It was better than TV. And never was a drudge? You never felt like it was a drudge? It was hard work because these were long days. Uh, you sat through, I mean, you know, depending on the testimony, some of it was very dull. But you had to piece the evidence together just like a jury did. And you had to understand what was going on, what the prosecutor was trying to do, what the defense attorney was trying to do because they each sort of had their own role in making their case. And who really was going to do the better job of convincing the jury? That played as much a role as the evidence did, because mm. sometimes there wasn't a lot of evidence and circumstantial evidence. So how was each of these lawyers going to win over this jury? So where was this big like chess game? And you get to report on these things. You know, I was in court most recently. I know we're jumping forward. That's fine. Uh, uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Oh, God. Well, he died, but there were all these women in the courtroom. This was federal court who said they were abused by Jeffrey Epstein. And there were about 40 women filling. This was a big courtroom in the federal courthouse. 40 women who came into that courtroom to let the court know that this is what happened to them. And they were there to make their presence known. I don't know if this was sort of a civil case going forward or that they were all joined in a class action, something like that. I don't recall at the moment. But that was pretty powerful to see these women all come and show up at the same time and all attractive women, well-dressed, and, and you, you could see why he was attracted to them. But it was very powerful to see this. Uh, so these are things that you cover, and some of these things just astound you. Right, and, you and obviously stick to you. So that also begs the comparison, as I said in the introduction, to Harvey Weinstein. So I covered that every day, and it had been a long time since we did a trial every day. But again, that trial, that case had international status. And I did, I filed reports twice a day after at the lunch break and at the end of the day and for the morning. But then I would update our website in between because things were happening during the trial. And now, of course, now you update your website. You tweet things out. And of course, he did not testify. But at the end of the trial, he made his own personal statement. And it 
kind of rambled. It went on for quite a while. And this was the first time we really heard him speak about anything related to this. And it was just fascinating. And like, whoa, he's speaking. He agreed to speak. Some people thought the trial was really going in his favor. Some people did not. There's all kinds of speculation, you know, among reporters. How do you think that evidence went over? Or how do you think that testimony went over? A lot of people thought it was a real jump shot. And he was convicted on some, but not all counts. I, because I never covered trials, I really wasn't out on the street very much. I can't imagine how you parse <laughs> what you hear. It's one thing to be a print reporter. You mean you could write for days, but when you're talking about, and a rap for people who don't know is when a reporter speaks, then puts an actuality and then speaks again. So to wrap around the actuality with the person that you're interviewing or the, the newsmaker, what a skill it is to put all this in 40 seconds. I remember Stan Brooks saying this. Stan Brooks was a reporter with 1010 wins for many years and really what a high bar. Oh, an he icon. Was genial. He was great. He was fast. You know, the minute he covered something, he'd run back to his desk and he just started writing. But he would say, you really have to get the nugget. So what's the nugget? What's the either the quote that stands out to you? What's the gist of the story? You don't have to tell the whole story. You're not writing in print 500 or 1,000 words. You have to get the essence of that story in, I get 40 seconds to do that. And you know what? It does help you because what stands out to you most or what's the most important piece of information here or what's new about what was just said or testimony, and it really boils down to that nugget. What else also strikes me? Because we're human beings, and how can you not react to what's going on around you? Because I always felt you have to be responsible to your listeners, and you have to be responsible with the facts, and it's the, the best available facts of the time. And with those kinds of things, you have to you know, use the word alleged very often. For sure, for the, sure. Or the accused. Right, 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 you know, right. This is somebody who's accused of, so we don't really know. If somebody was arrested, they're still accused. They're not convicted. And for sure. uh, unless they admitted, you don't really know. So I just always found I would just be very careful and I would either use the, the proper words. I couldn't have an opinion because I don't know. I don't know. No, not, you don't know. I mean, you, right. of course you weren't allowed. Right. I just think how on some level can one not be impacted by something? And to that point, Can you think of something that really was so difficult to separate yourself from? When John Lennon was shot, I will tell you that I had to learn to do my job because, you know, such a Beatle fan and blah, blah, blah. And I was working in the newsroom that night. I was working. I was the end of a second shift that day. At the time, I was freelancing. I'd worked a morning shift. I came home. Then they called me and can you work a 6 p.m. news writing shift? And I went in. (laughs) So there I am. And it must have been about, I don't know, 9 or 10 o'clock at night. So the shift was like from 6 to 1 or something like that. So I was getting near the end of the shift. I was like, okay. 
So then this is coming over the police radio. And then we got a call, we got a call from one of our anchors who I guess would listen to the police radio. And they said, hey, I'm hearing John Lennon got shot at the Dakota. And now we're really listening to the police radio. We were able to get a reporter up there, but I had to start writing the story before the reporter got there. We had a, uh-huh. this just in or right, 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 right. So I was the quote, John Lennon writer. And all I did that whole night into the next morning and through morning drive was write the John Lennon story. And we got it on the air first. So I think I still have somewhere some of the, the, that copy. I saved it. Like we had carbon copies at the time. Right, right. Types. I mean, this sounds like ancient history, but you well, typed in a typewriter, right? <laughs> yeah. You typed in a typewriter. And I saved some of those carbons from that story. And so John Lennon has just been shot. I think that was the first line I wrote. John Lennon has just been shot. It occurred such and such a time at the Dakota, outside the Dakota. He's been taken to Roosevelt Hospital. Uh, 1010 Winds will bring you all the latest. You know, that was it, like two, three lines. And after that, every time we got more and more information, I kept developing it and putting it on the air, running it into the anchor to read right, it. Right, and then right. we had the reporter there. So now I'm working now into the next morning. By the time I got home, of course, I'm exhausted and emotionally drained. And I remember then listening to WNEWFM because they were sort of the Beatles, rock and roll Beatles station on FM. Because mm-hmm. I needed to relate to the music and him on a different level. And I sat there really sort of stunned. That's when it sunk in about what happens. Because before that, I was doing my job. But then that's when it sunk in that he died and the emotional impact of what happened and the shock value mm, mm. of what happened. But I guess I had set it aside to do my job. And anything, even 9-11, you cannot get your emotions involved because it interferes with getting the facts and really reporting in a straightforward way. You can register, let's say, shock on the air. Oh, I, I, I'm watching the building coming down. I am watching people running up the block and screaming. You have to talk about what you see. Mm-hmm, but if you course. start getting your internal emotions sort of caught up in that, I don't think you're, you're fair to your listeners. You're and doing a disservice. Also, yeah, you're yeah, doing a disservice. And, and I think, too, then you're not. How do you function? How do you function? You can't, it's hard to function. because It's almost like you have to divide yourself in half. Yeah. You have the professional you, 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 and then you have the personal yeah. you. Right. Can you remember some other seminal moments where your world was really rocked and you were the one who was first telling me and all these other people what happened? Oh, wow. The John Gotti verdict was huge because the judge broke for lunch and I happened to still be outside the courtroom door. I hadn't gone to my to get lunch yet. And the clerk comes out and says to the lawyer, the jury has a verdict. <laughs> Unexpectedly, and was it did it come yes, quickly? Because okay. everybody went outside for, oh, to get oh, yeah, some yeah, lunch. Right. You just said, yeah. So I'm 
breaking this on the air. And even my editor, he said, are you sure? Are you sure? Like he couldn't believe it because I was the only one who was telling him this because I saw the clerk tell this lawyer, the defense lawyer, there's a verdict. So this judge took the verdict at lunch. So now I'm on the air and I see all these reporters screaming, running into the courtroom (laughs) because they were outside. They weren't around. They had a run in. Then the judge shut the door and only half the people got in. But that was a huge trial because he was the mob boss of New York. Yeah, forever, forever. And then even, I'll tell you, O.J. Simpson was big because of the brevity of that verdict and the fact that the DNA evidence was was discredited and not believed. I, I think there was such shock with that verdict because that was months and months of trial and a jury came back in, you know, a day and a half. So nobody could believe that, that that happened. And we were like, what? There's yeah. a verdict now? What? <laughs> I can't okay. imagine, though, it sometimes as you're as you're a court observer, as the reporter, just sort of getting bogged down in all the minutia and then having to put that aside to have a coherent, logical, like I said, yes. well, when you're a reporter, 40 second report, when you're special anchoring something like O.J. Simpson, there's not right. a time constraint in the same way. It depends on the on what you're anchoring. Like I did the presidential elections last year. Uh, you know, 16. Oh, 16. And that was very different because this is all political news and it was, you know, a uh, competition and all things going coming out about Hillary. And then, you know, and Trump was the New Yorker and that was intense in its own way. And then I just did an hour long special on 1010 Wins. We literally broke format for the first time ever. And we did a live one hour show about New York reopening. And we had Mayor de Blasio on, and we actually took callers. So that was a whole different sort of oh, level yeah. of, mm-hmm. of pressure. And and we did all of this remotely, which was another challenge, because most of the other times you're in a studio or you're wherever you are. This was all done remotely. It was fascinating that this all got done this way, and everything went well. I worked from home, like just like we're doing now. Uh I was uh home, but I saw people on Zoom. Right. The mayor was on the phone, but we had a couple of commissioners on Zoom. We had some other business leaders on, and then we had the callers call in. And this was a lot of moving parts. And heaven forbid something happens or somebody dropped out, which they didn't. But sometimes the caller, you sort of had to tweak the call a little, the question a little yeah, bit. Yeah, like kind of move it. on a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, make it yeah. make sense, you know, or who can right. answer that question? Oh, it was a real challenge. And you you know, when you're on the air live, Sandy, it's like a runaway train. It just <laughs> keeps, no control. It yes. just keeps going. You can't, right. you can't put on the brakes. You, it just goes and you have to. Keep it on the tracks. Well, and then you've got somebody in your ear like your editor. <laughs> Wrap it up. And yeah, well, duh. And this person is not even taking a breath that I can get inject myself in some way to say, well, thank See, you so much. You, you know, know uh, Sandy, you know, you've been on live and done live Q&A with people. And that is the beauty and the challenge of live radio. You I remember 
the Fed would always announce if there was an interest rate or not. And it was usually supposed to happen at 2.15. Now, (laughs) back then, the hour was divided into thirds. And I began at 20 after the hour to 20 of the hour. And when I heard that it was a Fed announcement, I prayed to the radio gods, please let it be 2.15 so that the other anchor, which was Ralph or Larry at the time, will right. take care of it because they always had somebody on to be interviewed, yes. like some financial person. And whenever it was happened, the two said, yes, thank you. And then, then the times that it didn't. And I remember <laughs> the editor screaming in my ear, the Fed is raising the rate, you know, and I, this just into 10, 10 wins. And I'd say that. And then they yes. say, okay. And standing on the line is Dr. Erwin Kellner. He's going yes. to talk about this. And I was like, oh, shit. And what am I? So I remember once just, he was on. And I worked with him, Juliet, a million years ago at WVOX. So we knew uh, each other. And it was saying, now Dr. Erwin Kellner, whatever, wherever yes. he worked. This might be. And I remember that the question I said, well, the Fed has raised interest rates. And I, I, my question was, how come and why? <laughs> was the question. And I Very couldn't good question. that. He's at, when, as soon as I asked that question, he said, great question, Sandy. Which <laughs> I said, I, on the air, I said, it is. Which <laughs> is saying, get off, because I don't know what you're talking about. Switching gears That's again, great. as I mentioned, you do parades. What was it like? And I know we'll divulge the fact that you're a Big Yankee fan to do yes. World Series stuff. Uh- my joys, those are my, my joys were, well, covering the Yankees, originally from the Bronx, so lived near the stadium. So the Yankees were like in my blood as a kid, in my parents, and we would go as when I was kids. So it was always that for me. And my Yankee Stadium to me was always a place of sort of joy. So getting to cover it, again, it's, it's your job now. Uh, it's very intense because there are all these other sports reporters who probably know it a hundred times better than I do. And it's a it's serious business, but it is so exciting to be in that stadium during playoff time. It is electric. And when the mm-hmm. team is a contender, it is, it is electric. And last year I actually had the opportunity to cover the U.S. Open tennis. And this year now, there will be no press. They will play the U.S. Open and it will be on ESPN. And that's where you're going to watch it because nobody's going to be in the stands. There will be no reporting from the Macy's 4th of July fireworks. If right. we were a betting women, you're likely not going to be doing any Macy's Thanksgiving parade. Day parade, kiddo. It breaks my heart. That is such a beautiful parade. We have a great vantage point on Avenue of the Americas, and we get to see it and report on it from that location. Now, you're out there, and and it's cold, and some Thanksgiving days have been colder than others. And just two years ago, it was, I think, in single digits. I'm not kidding. And I was like, how the heck do we figure this out? But people get so excited. And the floats and the balloons are absolutely beautiful. It is really a blast. It really is a lot of fun. I would also be remiss if we didn't, as I said in the introduction, go over to Vatican City 
no pun intended, did you die and go to heaven? <laughs> <laughs> no, let me tell you, that was intense because I was on, I don't know, 10, 12 hours a day, live, 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 because guess what? First of all, I had to educate myself on the all the terminology. And There's the protocol, all huh? kinds of And protocol, correct. I really studied. I, I found, I went online, I, I talked to some people, what's the proper reference for this, that, what is the whole substance of, or the steps in how they select the Pope? So, and there are specific steps and, you know, the College of Cardinals and how they meet and how they vote and what they do and, and blah, blah, blah. And then the Italian newspapers out there were have, they had the favorites. So, I know enough Italian to get by where I was able to sort of interpret. So they were sort of, you know, not that anybody was betting on it, but, oh, these are the top 10 likely, you know, papal uh, contenders. <laughs> it was just a riot. Then you had to wait for the smoke. Right. So you really right. had to watch this chimney and wait for the smoke to come out, whether it was black smoke or white, or white. smoke. So yeah. what happened was this went on not too long, I, I don't recall, a couple of days. There was a seagull that, that so stayed up there on the chimney. So the seagull had a Twitter account. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody gave the seagull a Twitter account like a first person and said, oh, I'm, you know, so-and-so seagull, and I'm here at the waiting for the smoke to come out, and I'm watching everybody down here in the Vatican in St. Peter's Square. It was a hoot. But when that smoke came out, you really went into gear because then you had a report, and then somebody gave me the best tip of all that the name of the Pope will be said in Latin, so you might not recognize it right away. I said, oh, that's a really good tip. So I will listen for something in Latin and figure out from my list of contenders who that would be. And so Francis, I think they said Francisco or Francisco or, oh no, they said his name and then they, what his name was. So I was able to delineate who the Pope was because somebody told me that, that I knew it was going to be said in Latin. And I try to understand what it was. And then I crossed my fingers and I said, I hope I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll tell you, going even being in Rome, you got into the history of the Vatican and Rome and Italy all at the same time. It was just a unique, intense and unique experience. It was really fabulous. As we wrap up, I'd simply like to say, how many seminal, iconic, incredible events you A, attended, and B, shared with millions and millions and millions of people? Um, well, I'm a little verklempt right now. See, <laughs> I am. I'm a little, like, a little overcome. Thank you for, like, it's very nice of you to, that we're talking about this. It's just like you don't have time to think about it. I, I, I just feel I'm very fortunate. Very fortunate. Well, nobody suffers fools gladly. I mean, clearly you had to be able to do what you do well and to be able to sustain it for so many years. And I guess you never got bored, huh? And you never got tired. Uh, no, 
yeah, there's some days that are so aggravating. And, well, you know, sometimes it's not even about the job. Sometimes it's like, who's like you're trying to get some information from some city agency and they're not being cooperative. And you're like, rah, rah, yeah, again, here we go again. And very frustrating, but that's part of the job. Who knew that this coronavirus, look at what's going on with this now. Have you ever seen anything like it? No way. This is just. And you were working during the AIDS epidemic. Yes. Yes, yes. And that was also, things were very foreign and you didn't know. And that was a whole learning process too, about what that was and how it could be treated and how it had affected the gay community and all the issues of discrimination there. Another complete learning curve on that and the gay community coming, being very forthright and being very active and organized, uh, just complete learning curve. So all of this is, you, you have to look at things maybe with a bit of wonder, and then you're always sort of learning. And I still see this job as a continuous learning experience. What a great way to end. Well, Juliet, on a personal and professional level, it was so good to work with you, to call you my friend, Uh, and to go down memory lane with you. Always. And we still do have a great working relationship. And we have our friendship. And it's it's just a treat. It really is. Well, that's the bonus of working with really great people. Uh, It was just really terrific. Here's hoping you'll be out on the street before long. Yeah, I'm sure soon enough. Yeah. uh, Yeah. (laughs) We can't hold out there. But it was just terrific. We'll, We'll see you on the radio, kiddo. Absolutely. Thank you, Sandy. And you too. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.